Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, welcome everyone. So good to see you. So good to see some new faces. Uh, always, you're always welcome. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm pastor here at City Beautiful Church. Um, we're continuing on in a 437-part series about how scientists are trying to lie to us with this idea of gravity when it's actually the weight of our sin that keeps us firmly anchored <laughs> to the earth. Uh, that one's courtesy of John David Harris. So, No, we are actually in a very different kind of series. We believe faith and science can coexist here. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out, we, we have, there's, a, there's a, a Tesla coil back there, and there's a, like a four-foot chameleon sculpture back there, so I'm still trying to work out how I can incorporate them into my messages, but we'll get there. Uh, but we're in a series called Wandering Home that we began last week, and you know, our whole uh, kind of vision for this year is all our allegiance to King Jesus. What does it mean that allegiance is where we're gathered up, mind, body, spirit, heart, everything behind Jesus as our king, and as he begins that healing process of, of, uh, of bringing back together what has been uh, kind of shredded apart um, by this world, um, as we're becoming more whole, we're kind of giving our faith to him more and more. And that faith is actually a journey, and that's what we were talking about last week. Faith, uh, there's a lot of different analogies in Scripture that, you know, maybe we're like Abram, where it's going into the distant land where we don't really know what's on the horizon, but we know that God's there. Um, Maybe it's like Jacob, where we're waking up to the reality of God that was present here the whole time, but we were the ones that were unaware. There's all these different ways of examining faith, but one thing we can say for certain is that it's never static. Many of us have been raised with this idea that if I can kind of get all of my doctrinal beliefs in order and I just, I know what I'm going to believe and then when I get to the pearly gates and St. Peter gives me the the fill-in bubble test, then I get to go to heaven and that's what it is. But in recognizing, no, faith is this constant journey of orientation, kind of building understanding of God and self and the world, of disorientation, where sometimes Uh, The definitions that we've received in our families of origin and our communities of origin maybe just don't really seem to make sense of what we're experiencing. And then reorientation as we're patient through those times of struggle and strife and doubt, but we continue to to follow Jesus together, um, that perhaps we come to some new revelations of what God's like, or or we come back to old things, but we hold them in new ways. And so in this series, what we're going to be doing is looking at some of the first followers of Jesus and following their stories to see this non-static cycle of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And the hope is that each, each of the people that we're going to be following, we find ourselves in them, in their stories, in the way that they are practicing their faith. Because for most of them, uh, they don't, quote unquote, get it until they meet the resurrected Jesus. And I, I find a, a tremendous amount of solace in that. Like, can you imagine, like, you literally, you walked with Je- like, actual Jesus. Like, physically, there he is. He's five foot six. He's brown. He's normal-looking guy, but he's doing miracles. And you're following him for three years, and you still don't get it. Maybe that makes you feel a little bit better. You know, for me, like, six foot two, very white, up here, doing this thing. He was 2,000 years ago, but I've got his spirit near me. Like, I actually feel pretty good when I look at their stories and go, yeah, okay, it's all right if I don't get it all the time. 
you know? Like I've told you guys before, I'm probably an atheist like 30% of the time, but you still employ me to do this. You know what I mean? Like it's part of the process. And so I'm hoping that as we're looking at the stories of each of these people, it gives us courage in our own journeys of faith to say, okay, it's not about getting it all the time, but it is about continually coming back to King Jesus' time and again, allowing him to do something in us and then allowing him to do something through us on the, for the benefit of those around us. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in today. Come on in. You're fine, Hunter. Um, so Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you are for us, you're not against us. And Lord, even knowing so many of the stories in this room, um, I thank you that you still brought us all here today. Some of us are in that place of orientation where we're learning and we're growing and we're kind of understanding who you are and, and we're, we're developing a, an understanding of the world and ourselves and our place in it. Some of us, we're kind of going through disorientations. Maybe it's one big grand crisis of faith or maybe it's just a constant shifting and, and feeling of confusion and, and being just a little bit off. And some of us, Lord, we've experienced that reorientation or that resurrection where because we've encountered you with our questions and our doubts and our struggles, um, we've come home to some sort of new way of understanding you and understanding ourselves in light of your love. And that's why we're here, Lord. We have a very high expectation that we're going to meet you and we're going to be transformed by that encounter. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today, we're going to be looking at the story of Peter. Of course, he felt like the right person to start this series with. And kind of what I'm going to do is mostly just tell the story of Peter. We're going to be looking at a few key passages of Scripture. And I'm excited, actually, we're going to use three different Gospels today. We're going to use Matthew. We're going to use Luke. We're going to use John. Mark just kind of feels like the cliff notes for Matthew, let's be honest. No, it's great. Mark is totally necessary as well. But we're going to be using those three. But I, my hope is that we, we follow Peter's journey and we see, like I said, something of ourselves in him, that he becomes this template for us. Because if there's any of the disciples, first of all, we've got more stories about Peter than any of the other disciples. But if there's any disciple that demonstrates this constant missing the mark and overstepping his bounds and understepping his bounds and not really getting it until he meets the resurrected Jesus, it would be Peter. And so this is kind of where, what I want you to be listening for as, we, as I tell his story. We, like Peter, might be flailing about in the presence of Jesus because we want to leave a good impression. How many of you, like that's you, like you, you really want to leave a good impression on people. Like first impressions are so important. You want to do a really good job and you really want people to like you through your, okay? Just, okay, so three of you. So uh, <laughs> see you all later. Like, obviously, no. So, so many of us were flailing about in the presence of other people, uh, but certainly in the presence of Jesus because we really want to leave a good impression. Yet we can so easily miss Jesus standing right in front of us. Maybe another way to say it is like we're so busy to do and to perform and to behave that we miss that it's, that's not what this is actually about. And so Peter, we meet Peter. Peter's name in Aramaic is Cephas. His name in Greek is Petros, and it means rock, okay? And safest probably means something like pebble or stone, like a little stone. And if you know the story 
of Peter. Later on, Jesus says, I'm going to call you Peter because you're the rock upon which I will build my church. And I love that. Like in a lot of, of the names, especially in their culture, a little bit more so than ours, names carry a certain grounding or orientation to God or some sort of prophetic pronouncement of who you're going to be. And I love that as we follow the story of Cephas, of Peter, we see this little pebble that just seems to be stuck in Jesus' shoe the whole time. He's kind of annoying and he's there, but he eventually he will grow and become a true solid rock. And so we're going to begin in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. This is the first time that we encounter Simon Peter. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, even there, we can start to see some patterns for what it is for us uh, to be patterned after uh, Peter's journey in that, like this idea of putting out into deep water and this, you know, kind of saying, well, I don't really understand this, but I'm going to be obedient. But I mean, we can kind of go into that later. But when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners on the other boat to come and help him. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Have you ever seen so many fish that you were convicted of your sin? (laughs) Powerful. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, one of the things that's interesting for us in our, in our kind of 21st century mentality, we see the calling of the disciples, and Jesus says, come follow me, and they just drop what they're doing and leaving. We're like, well, that just seems really strange. He has like no credentials. But you have to understand, in the first century, every Jewish mother wanted their son to grow up and become a rabbi. Like that was like the highest calling that you could have. And so at an early age, little boys would kind of be put through a series of tests to see, do they have what it takes to become part of the religious elite? And if you were good enough, you were apprenticed to a rabbi, and you would follow that rabbi ever and the, everywhere, and they would be teaching you as they're going along the way, and then eventually you would graduate um, and you would become a rabbi. It's kind of like Padawans and Star Wars and Episode One. I haven't given you a Star Wars reference in ages, so you're welcome. So the fact that Peter and his brother and some of their friends, like they're here fishing, it means they got passed over. They weren't good enough. In fact, most of Jesus's twelve were probably teenagers. We think Peter's maybe a little bit older, early 20s, but a lot of them were teenagers um, because there would have been that age, 12, 13 or so, where they would have kind of been put through the tests and they were found wanting, okay? So what's happening here is another rabbi has come along and said, actually, I want you to follow me. So Peter's being offered the highest honor that he could be given within his culture. And so, of course, he's going to say yes. But I think it really sets us up to understand Peter's psyche as he's on this journey, because he is, he's lived a significant portion of his life 
understanding that he was passed over for greatness. He wasn't good enough. He didn't make the mark. And I wonder what that does for him when he says, oh my goodness, I've been given a second chance. How many of you, you feel a little bit passed over, right? Like you weren't, maybe you're not quite good enough. You didn't get the promotion. That relationship didn't work. Whatever it is, you know, you feel like, well, okay, I'll, I'll just settle into something else. And then you're called to something else. Like Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 it's I want you. And you're like, okay, let's do this. Like, what do I got to do? Like, I do not want to mess this up. You see, for me, like a, the huge cultural orientation of being, of being British and Irish kind of together in, in being from Northern Ireland is this sense of doing your duty, right? Like stiff upper lip, you've got to do what's expected of you. And so as soon as the call comes along, you're I got to do this. Oh my gosh. I, need, I, I remember when I was offered this job and just thinking like, I don't understand this. I don't feel worthy of this. Like I'm not qualified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, remem- like, I remember figuring out in retrospect that my attitude was, I'm not good enough to do this. I don't deserve this calling. So I better do a really, really, really good job with the thing that I've been called to steward. Anybody else resonate with that? Right? You're like, I'm not technically good enough for this thing that God's called me to. So I better do a really good job and I better behave and I better mind my P's and Q's and don't step out of line and don't, do not like be ungrateful because you're not qualified, okay? That's the mentality that Peter's coming into this with. And so Peter and these first disciples, they're called by this rabbi Jesus and they begin to follow him. And the first part of the story is that they're just kind of watching and they're observing and they're asking questions and they're seeing the way that he interacts with like, with Pharisees and Sadducees, when he, the way he interacts with Samaritans and people who aren't Jewish, his miracles. And at some point, Jesus begins to transition over saying, okay, now I'm going to start sending you out and you're going to practice the things that I've been laying down for you. And there's this really amazing moment in the story of Peter specifically, where Jesus is sitting around with his disciples. He says, well, who do people say that I am? And some of them say, oh, well, some think that you're, you know, Elijah that's come back, like the prophet, there was this prophecy that he was going to return. Some people think that maybe you're John the Baptist reincarnated, you know, Jesus's cousin had been beheaded uh, for speaking up against um, the, the, um, the political elite. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Lord. And that's the moment when Jesus says, you, you've spoken right. And that's why I'm calling you Peter, because it's upon you that I'll build the, the church. Like, you are the rock upon which I'll build the church. And literally, guys, literally, you can go look this up. It's like five verses later. Jesus begins to talk about how he's going to die, okay? And Peter goes, no, that I, no, there's no way. We cannot let this happen to you. And does anybody know, what is it Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So you go from, you are Peter, the rock upon which I will build my church, and literally five minutes later, get behind me, Satan. What does that do to Peter's psyche, right? But this is the way that he is. It's like he just, sometimes he's just in it, and he nails it, and he's like, I know this, I'm all in. And sometimes he just totally misses the mark. And he's always the first one to respond, too, because he really, really wants Jesus to like him. How many of you really want Jesus to like you? Right? I love that. You're the rock upon which I'll build this church, and you're Satan. (laughs) But one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite Peter stories comes in Matthew um, 
17 verses 1 through 8. This is a very pivotal transformation. There's, there's kind of Jesus' ministry before this story, which is the transfiguration. And then there's Jesus' ministry after. It's almost like he levels up and he's getting ready to go and fight the boss, okay? And that's what's happening here. So this is uh, Matthew 17, 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. What does that mean, transfigured? We, sometimes we mistake that transfigured means like something was added to Jesus or he got extra, like he ate the mushroom and he became large Mario. That's not what's happening. Transfigured means Jesus was revealed to be who he always has been, but we didn't always see it. So the transfigured Jesus, the Jesus on top of the mountain, that's the really real Jesus. It's not an extra Jesus. That's what he really looks like. But we, with veiled faces, couldn't always see it. This is very, very important. So Jesus is being revealed as he truly is. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What does that mean? Moses was the author of the law, the Torah, okay? kind of God's blueprint for rehabilitating Israel and teaching them how to be the royal priesthood who would go and bless all the nations. And um, Elijah represents the prophets, okay? Those who came later in Israel's story to call them back into relationship with God because they had gone so far off course. And we frequently see this in, especially the New Testament for the Jews, they'd say the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, they come along. It's like basically everything that God has said up until now is contained within the law and the prophets, okay? So it's Moses and Elijah. So the fact that the two of them show, so here's Jesus being revealed to be who he truly is, and Moses and Elijah coming, and they're kind of like, they're kind of, you know, submitting to him. It's this living symbol. And when I say symbol, I don't mean it's less than true. I mean it's more true than what it is that's being presented on the surface, okay? Very important. Literally, everything that God has spoken up until this point is submitting to Jesus as the true revelation of what God is actually like. That's what's happening. Big deal, okay? Now, you and I, maybe we'd be kind of knocked on our butts by this image. Oh, ho, ho, dear reader, not our friend Peter. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So he's just being so gosh darn helpful, okay? <laughs> and I love this. I love breaking that down. He goes, oh, it's good for us to be here. He's like, oh, this is great. This is nice. I like this. This is a great, this is a cool moment. And he says, if you wish, you know, Jesus, just at your suggestion, like, what, it's all ultimate, it's what you want. But if you want me to go ahead and, like, take care of this for you, I'll do that. I want to be helpful. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So what is Peter doing here? To me, this is akin, like, we're kind of entering back into live music and concerts. How many of you are really excited for that? Right? It's been a minute. I was supposed to see Deaf Heaven last year, and I didn't. And Carcass just put out a new album, and I don't even know they're going to tour behind it. Oh, I need some riffs. But it's akin to, like, when you go to the concert, and there's that person in the front row like this the whole stinking time, right? And two things. Number one, you've totally missed the show because you're only focused on this little rectangle. And number two, you are never ever going to watch that video. I guarantee you, 
I promise. Because what did you do? You took a transcendent experience and you turned it into a product that you can consume later. You took this marvelous thing that's happening in front of you and you shrunk it down to make it more manageable so that you could own it. So you could possess the moment and in doing so you miss the moment. Okay? Are we preaching? So what is Peter doing here? He goes, this is great. I love this. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to literally take this transcendent, unimaginable, ineffable moment that I'm witnessing of, of the transfigured Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and I'm going to put it a cap on it. And I'm going to shrink it down, and I'm going to make it more manageable because I'm inserting myself. This is my ego running amok just so that I can kind of control what's actually happening here. So while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And it echoes the, what God speaks over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. And it's like God saying, Peter, shut up. You're, ugh, you're missing it. Just watch, like listen to him, see what's happening. Moses and Elijah are submitting to him, but you're still trying to commodify this whole experience. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. And how often does Jesus have to continually say that? Do not be afraid. You know, I think it's actually Peter's fear that makes him do that. He's afraid that he's not good enough. He's afraid that he's not leaving a good impression on Jesus. He's afraid that if he doesn't do something active, he, like he feels like in this moment he's an imposter. It's like, oh, if I have something to contribute. How many of you, like you can't go over to somebody's house unless you bring a gift or a bottle of wine or something, right? It's like, oh, I, I'm not allowed to be here unless I actually contribute something. And that's, those are the moments where God's like, would you shut up for a second? Just, just bear witness. Just experience the glory of the moment. You see, Peter, like so many of us, he wants to control the narrative in order to understand it rather than to stand in awe of Jesus as he truly is. I want to show you this is a modern icon, Kelly Lattimore. Uh, he, he's an iconographer up north. Can we, let's bring the house lights just a little bit and maybe we can see it a bit better. And I love this. He, he did this painting of the transfiguration and he was messing with it on his iPad with his six-year-old nephew and it, and it accidentally glitched. And this is what happened. He goes, oh, that's perfect. And he's begun to sell this, and I, I bought it, and it's up on the wall. And I love that it kind of, it feels like that, like that kind of ineffable something is happening more than we can necessarily make sense of, but it feels kind of transcendent in, that, in maybe a very modern language when we speak of icons. And it's something that we have to bear witness to. We can only experience and allow it to wash over us. We can't package it and commodify it and kind of put our limitations on it, because then we're going to miss it. And it's like the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner says, all good theology should lead us to awe. Like when you think about Jesus, are you in awe of what he's like? Or is your doctrine so tidy 
that you've commodified Jesus. Like you've, you've put a shelter around Jesus because you're like, oh yes, Jesus is like this, da 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 And it's like, your, actually your beliefs, your belief system has domesticated him. So you can put him in your pocket and you can carry him wherever you go. Or do you, do you encounter the transfigured Jesus through the scriptures, through the faces of those who love you, through your times of prayer and meditation, and your response is awe. That's the goal. And I think that's when we know that we've moved from disorientation to reorientation, is when we're brought to awe and wonder because we've encountered Jesus as he truly is a little bit more than we did the first time that we met him or the second time that we met him or whatever it might be. And so they come off the mountain and they begin this kind of new level of Jesus' ministry. There's a, there's a greater sense of urgency. Like Jesus can really feel the weight of the kingdom kind of moving in. And, when, and we know there's going to be this clash between the kingdom and the empire. And the empire is the, the political elite, whether it's Rome with Caesar and Pilate, whether it's, um, you know, the kind of puppet government that's been established in Judea, whether it's the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. Like, we know this is, there's this head-to-head conflict is about to happen between the kingdom of heaven and the empires of the world, uh, and especially uh, the Satan. And so we enter into the final week of Jesus' life before his death and his resurrection. And there's a moment uh, on this very special night where they're kind of, they're celebrating um, the Seder dinner, and Jesus begins to kind of like take some of these images and like try to help his followers to see what it is that's about to happen. And there's this beautiful story. Um, I think it's in John, uh, it's in John 13, where Jesus it says, ha- uh, he, uh, "Having loved his own, he loved them until the end," which I just think is one of the best verses in the scriptures. And it says that Jesus knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. It kind of it's establishing this narrative of like who Jesus really is. Um, and what Jesus does is he, he strips down all his clothes, he wraps a towel around himself, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Okay, so the king of the universe, who has this holy origin, has this holy destination, he knows everything, uh, like he's loving them to the end, he stoops down to wash their feet. And then he comes to our sweet Peter. And of course, what does Peter do? Peter does what many of us would do. Oh, no, 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 you, you, you want me to, you know, you don't wash my feet. I wash your feet. That's how this relationship is supposed to work. And Peter thinks he's saying the right things. He thinks he's saying the impressive things. And again, Jesus is like, would you shut up? Just let me do this. Like, let me wash your feet. I think Jesus is maybe a little bit more rude in my head than he actually was in the original Aramaic. I don't know. I'm holding myself back. Like, if it was me, I'd have some words. We'd have some words for Peter. And then so Peter goes, okay, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then why don't you wash my hands and my head? Peter, stop. Just let me freaking do this for you. Like, let me show you something. And again, it's like Peter, he's like back and he's forth and he's he's too invested. He's not, he's just so fidgety because he's, he wants Jesus to like him, and Jesus is like, I'm here, man. I already like you. Like, just let me serve you. And we see it again. The night that they go into the garden, and Jesus is praying, and uh, Judas comes with the soldiers to betray him, right? And like he says, I'm one I'm going to kiss, and so Judas kisses 
uh, Jesus on the cheek. And he says, friend, do what you came here to do. And as the soldiers step in to begin to arrest Jesus, what happens? Peter takes out his sword and he chops off the ear of the high priest's servant who happened to be there. And Jesus says, enough of this. And he picks up the ear and he brings healing. And Tertullian in the second century said that when uh, Jesus disarms Peter in the garden, he disarmed all Christians. That our way is not the way of violence and retribution, but it's through forgiveness and rehabilitation and restoration. So again, Peter over-inserting himself, thinking he's doing the right thing, thinking if I protect Jesus, that's going to be the thing that gets me into good relationship with him. And then finally, what do we see? The night that Jesus is arrested and where he's being tried, Peter's kind of hovering outside, you know, in, in the city gates, and he's walking around, he's in front of his fire, and people are like, oh, I know, you're with him. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not with him. Which he had said, like, the night before, Jesus, I will never deny you, I will die for you. And he says, I tell you the truth, you're going to do it three times, and he does. And then the cock crows, and Peter realizes what he's done. My God, I have betrayed the man that I love the most in this whole world. So Peter walks away in this profound shame. He missed it. And Jesus is crucified. And that brings us to the final story. In John 21, this one's a little bit long. So just follow along. And I encourage you, allow God to light your imagination so you can kind of see this playing out in front of you. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll, we'll, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So how many of us, when we experience profound disappointment, when something didn't work out, we're like, I'm just going to go home. I'm just going to do the thing that I used to do. So that's what Peter's done. He was on this wild adventure for three years thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to become a rabbi. And then as he encounters this rabbi, he's like, there's something way bigger happening here than what I thought. And then it all falls apart. It all goes to hell in a handbasket. And he goes, I'm just going to go back to what I'm good at, which is fishing. Almost being a second-class citizen, going back to being the one who was overlooked. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Remember, the resurrected Jesus, it's him, but it's him kind of in a new way, in a way they didn't recognize. Like in the previous chapter, you know, Jesus or Mary sees Jesus in the garden. She thinks he's the gardener, and the punchline is, well, he is the gardener because this is the new Garden of Eden, but she didn't recognize him at first, and so they don't recognize Jesus at first. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, writes himself in his own story going, which I love. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Again, Peter, he's reckless and sometimes he's just like, let's do it. We're in, let's go. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. 
So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And you got to, you know, there's like so many smells and memories happening in this moment. You know, it's probably like bringing back all these feelings. You know, how many of you, like, you go through something profoundly disappointing and you just shut off your heart, right, to cope? You just go back to fishing? And then you have to contend with the things that happened in the past? Like, what's that about? But it's the smells, it's the memories, it's the breaking of the bread, it's the breaking of the fish. And I bet their hearts are just like, they're feeling it. They're like, I don't want to go here. I don't want to have to deal with this. That sucked. That was the worst thing that I've had to go through. But Jesus is there to coach them through it. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus didn't, or Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus reinstates Peter by forgiving him three times. Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus over a fire of burning coals. And Jesus forgives Peter over some burning coals. You see, for you, it doesn't matter how many times through disappointment or feeling or fear or whatever it is, like your shame, your guilt, where you like walk away. We're like, he won't bring you back. And he'll sit with you over the fire and he'll cook you some fish. And you go, okay, yeah, you messed up. You missed it. Do you love me? I go, yeah. I go, but do you love me? Yeah, I do. But do you love me? You know everything. You know that I love you. I say, okay. Show it. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of the ones that I care about. You see, forgiveness is not some sort of abstract thing where there's like a chit board in the sky. You remember you got little black demerits when you were a kid? Hopefully you never got those. You know, it's like you got the demerits and then they just like gone and it's just like out in space. It's like, no, forgiveness is where you demonstrate it through the way that you begin to love those whom Jesus loves. And I think this is the moment where Jesus goes, now you're Peter, now you're Petros. Now you're the one, the solid rock upon which I can build my church. Because Peter, I think, had to go through that whole cycle of orientation to the world, profound disorientation of not only losing the one that he loved, but the shame and the guilt that came from denial, from not being strong enough, from not being able to persevere, to being reinstated by Jesus, to receiving forgiveness from him time and again. It made him who he becomes, a solid person. 
So what happens to Peter beyond this story? We know Peter becomes an integral leader of the early church, especially when it was primarily um, an, an expression of Judaism, and then Paul comes in and it begins to expand. But Peter knew he was called first and foremost to his own people, the Jewish people. And so he becomes kind of the leader of the whole movement. And our Catholic brothers and sisters would say Jesus or Peter was the first pope, and he was the pope in Rome, okay? So he's kind of like the, the, the primary leader. And late in his life, he's actually uh, captured and prosecuted by the Roman Empire uh, and by the Emperor Nero, and he's, um, it's determined that he's to be crucified, okay? Which many of you would know, crucifixion is kind of like the worst punishment that you can get. And Peter, at his trial, goes, all right, I will happily be crucified, but you're going to crucify me upside down because there's no way that I can compare to my own King Jesus. Like, what are the things that we complain about again? You know? He's like, crucify me upside down. Do it. I dare you. Because I don't want to go out like he did. Like, that's dedication. That's solid faith. But he had to earn that. He had to get there. He didn't start there. So Peter is a story of someone who is headstrong because they're afraid. He's either running too far ahead or he's always lagging behind the place that Jesus desires him to be. And he needs to learn how to pivot from his own fear of his own lack of not being good enough, of not measuring up or whatever it might be, to learning how to abide in God's presence. And so sometimes our fear of not being in right standing with God becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you realize this? Do you realize, like, when Paul writes later on, he's like, who can separate us from the love of God? It's like, I can. I can do that. Because I'm, I'm just, my attention is devoted elsewhere, and I'm, I'm scrambling, and I'm trying to figure out, and Jesus is standing right in front of me. He's like, I'm here. I'm right here. Like, stop fidgeting. And if I'm afraid that I'm not in right standing of God, it's usually more because of something that I'm doing than it is something that Jesus is doing. And so our life journey, just like Peter, is to pivot from this posture of like, what must I do to behave right, to earn my place, to be a really good Christian boy or Christian girl? Like, what do I need to do to pivot into going, where, where is God right now? And maybe more specifically, say, where is Jesus right now? And in this, this crisis in my life, this crisis of faith, this crisis of relationship, of situation, of, of my dreams and aspirations, or whatever it is, whatever crisis is in my life right now, before I start reaching and grasping to do a bunch of good things, can I slow down? Can I open up and go, Jesus, what are you saying right now? What are you doing? Pivot. And so Peter moves from this story of being overlooked and trying to find his place in Jesus. He moves into this place of the shame of his denial of Jesus to this reinstatement through forgiveness from Jesus. And I love Ian Cron says that grace is, this, is, is the story that is required to tell us this, the opposite story of where we've been headed, right? Okay? So you have this story. This is your, per, your personality is a narrative 
that you came up with to explain why the world is the way it is. And grace is the thing that invites you to turn around and to come home. So what does grace sound like for Peter? What does grace sound like for many of us who are security-oriented and fearful and insecure? It's what we saw several times in these stories where Jesus comes and he looks you in the eyes and he says, Fear not, for I am with you always. And if Jesus is always with us, that means that we can always slow down and we can pause and we can say, where are you right now? I know you're with me always. You promised me that. But where are you right now? How do you see me? How do you see this, this situation? And what are you doing here? And it doesn't abdicate us of the responsibility of good and right action. We see that in Peter all the time. But it, it changes the, the way in which we decide what we're called to do. What action looks like. How many of you, you're so doing-oriented because you're afraid deep down inside you aren't good enough. That you're not welcome. That you're, all, you're lacking something and you've got to make it up through being a good contributor. So what we're going to do is I'm going to leave some space for us to practice the presence of King Jesus. And I'm going to pray in a moment and I want you to consider some sort of crisis in your life right now. Maybe it's a situational crisis something related to your job or your future or your living situation, whatever it might be. It might be a relational crisis. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you're harboring a deep sense of resentment against a friend who disappointed you. Maybe there's a, there's a crisis of identity. You don't know who you are, or you think you know, but you really don't like what you see. Okay, It's going to be different for each person. But I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit, not, not for you just to scramble and just like pick something out of the ether, but for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to actually highlight one thing today that he wants to address. And he's going to go, let's talk about this thing. And some of you are going to be like, yeah, okay, fine, obviously that's the thing. And some of you are going to be really surprised by what the Spirit of Jesus brings up. But we're just going to pause and we're going to ask Jesus, where are you right now? What do you see? What are you saying? And the more that we practice that, learning to listen to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, it be, it's like a muscle. We've got to keep practicing. And the more natural it becomes to us, and when we're able to pivot to those kinds of questions when it comes to knowing what to do, what is good action, it's because we're following Jesus because we've pledged allegiance to him, not because we're just flailing around in the universe hoping something sticks. So I want you to just kind of get in a posture to receive. We've talked about this a lot, like, I believe your heart and your mind, they follow your body. And if you're closed off physically, like if you're like balled up or like whatever, your heart is closed off. But if you open up your body and you kind of roll back your shoulders and have your hands out in front of you in a posture of reception, like your heart and your mind will follow with you. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to just give you some time to be with the Lord. So Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you the story of Peter. May we see ourselves in him more and more day by day that deep down we feel like we're not good enough or we don't have enough to contribute, to earn our place in your presence. And so we're fidgety, we're tired, we over-insert ourselves, we under-insert ourselves. When all this time you're standing right in front of us and saying, I am here, fear not, abide in me. 
So Jesus, would you send your Holy Spirit now to a light upon each of your dear ones here? And you, would you reveal to us each individually a crisis in our lives, situational, relational, crisis of identity, whatever it might be, where we feel itchy, we feel that need to act, to move, to do something. And would you begin to speak to us about what you see, where you are, and what you want to say to us. So speak, Lord, for we're listening. feel like King Jesus is saying to many of you right now, you are released from the expectation to have a plan. You are released from the expectation to need to figure out what to do next. He's saying, we'll get there. Just slow down. Sometimes it's that compulsive need to figure out, okay, what's the next thing? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? That's Peter in us. And it's Jesus saying, fear not. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. So we're going to enter back into worship. And if you feel like you need to sit there and just do a little bit more listening to the Spirit of Jesus, 
like resisting that compulsive need to do stuff and to have a plan and to like take control of your life or to run the narrative, whatever it is, like you have permission to do that. But if you want to stand and you want to sing and you want to worship on behalf of those who maybe need a little bit more space, I would encourage you to do that as well. Because as we sing truths over one another, we're strengthening each other in the spirit. I really believe that. We're singing truths over one another that some of us can't hold on to right now because of what we're going through. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Again, Lord, I thank you that you are a living God. That you are present in this moment. You're not a rumor of the past. We don't have to build our faith on the fumes of those who have come before us, but we are actually capable of communing with you right now. Because this whole thing called faith, it's about being in intimate relationship with you. It's not about following rules and it's not about doing the right things. It's about being here with you. Lord, I thank you that not only do you desire to speak to each of your dear children here today, but you see us as capable of hearing your voice, of trusting that it is in fact you. So as we worship, Lord, we give you permission to do whatever you need to do in this space to lead us into deeper, intimate relationship with you that we might abide in your presence from moment to moment. I pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.